This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Charles Reed Anderson on the global state of Internet of Things, aka IoT, in 2018 and discuss why most IoT initiatives fail and the interesting case of Taipei's smart city initiatives. Hi, Charles. Hello, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing very well. So have you been traveling across Asia Pacific on IoT these days? Still tracking a little bit more from home, but I was I spent some time recently up in Taiwan meeting with the uh, government, talking about some of their initiatives. So, But a lot of it's just been tracking what's been going on at Mobile World Congress from the home base in Singapore. And I'm talking to Charles Anderson, founder of Charles Street Anderson & Associates. Since our last conversation, what have you been up to? I've been doing a little bit more research on the global survey that we had conducted. It was a global IoT survey that talked to over 1,200 companies worldwide. So trying to figure out not just the high-level information that you get out of the survey, but how do the different components of that survey tie together to really drive the industry trends. So what I'm trying to figure out is what's really holding us back and what mistakes are we making that we need to change to drive growth in IoT. Since our last conversation, I decided this time around, I'm going to get you to talk on two separate episodes. And so in the first part of it is probably the title is really shiny because when I shared the infographic, a lot of people sent me comments on the news that today was a great infographic is on why IoT initiative failed. IoT meaning Internet of Things. To start with, can you give an introduction to how companies usually frame IoT initiatives and who are the stakeholders involved? Well, I guess what they try to do when they frame it, of course, they, they get I, the IT department involved. But when that has happened previously in recent years, it's led to a lot of failure points because when they initially do it, those people tend not to have the resources or the funding and the senior management support to actually drive those initiatives forward. So what we've been doing over the last few years is looking at how that evolves. And what we've seen is that it is changing quite a bit. And there's been some good positive things coming out of that now. So what you're seeing is people like senior management um, are now engaged in 86% of IoT initiatives. And that's important because that means these initiatives get the types of funding and support that they need and resources to try and drive them forward. But unfortunately, we don't really see it going out into the other areas yet as much. There are more people from, let's say, strategy or marketing getting involved, but it's not to the level that we really need to drive these change. And I think the, the challenge we have in companies are framing IoT initiatives is upfront, there's a lack of planning around it where they don't really bring in all the stakeholders and the end users that they need. And a lot of times, it's just too much tech for tech's sake. They want to deploy an initiative that works, but they don't think about whether it will actually deliver value or whether it will be adopted by those end users. So when I think about companies framing IoT initiatives, I'll think of examples of we have port facilities and they're putting up networks in order to do asset tracking. You think of oil and mining fields, they also deploy IoT to basically have a network so that the construction vehicles or the workers are able to communicate using smartphones or even computing devices. So what benefits will IoT typically deliver for companies? I mean, in Asia, how do you think about that? Then? Everyone always has their laundry list that they go out and you know ask the survey respondents, what are they looking to actually accomplish? I tend to break it down into three different areas. And I look at it from the strategic perspective, the operational perspective, and financial. And each of those areas, you can drive some value. So if you look at it strategically, a lot of companies still think they can drive product and service innovation, deliver competitive advantage. 
And I think a lot of them now think that they can enhance the customer experience. But I'll explain why a little bit later why that one's risky. Operationally, it's about just trying to drive operational excellence. So you're optimizing your workflows. You're trying to enhance your processes. Um, and improve your decision-making through data. On the financial side as well, this is where I always think that initially they should focus on more because all business cases around IoT need to deliver value and it's easier to justify a cost savings opportunity than a new revenue stream. And so we see them looking to reduce costs, you know, whether it's operating costs or costs through process automation, or some even think they can do it through reduced headcounts. I think the one I'm probably less bullish on would be about driving the new revenue streams because we haven't seen that many cases yet where people have successfully driven a lot of new revenue streams on these. Just as a follow-up, are you saying that what is happening at the moment is most IoT initiatives are typically placed more on trying to do cost savings in operations and less on trying to think about how to generate new revenues? Well, the revenue streams, when we surveyed that group, 43% of the companies think they can drive new revenue streams. And I'll be honest with you, this is one of those points in the survey where I just want to know more about why. Because I've talked to so many people about this, stakeholders and leaders in the industry, and we all struggle with this because, you know, whether it's some of the big operators I've talked to or ICT vendors, we don't see the new revenue streams as much yet. Much more the delivery things that they see going on relate to reducing operating costs. But even there, you know, less... And to be honest with you, more companies think they can drive strategic value than financial value. But I think that's a little bit tougher to measure as well. But the good news is, is because we're getting those senior management stakeholders involved, people are realizing that this isn't going to go away and that they have to drive value and that this is the strategic direction for their company is to address the potential digital disruptors that could come in and impact their business. So which stakeholders must be involved in the process since you mentioned that you're actually getting senior management involved in these IoT initiatives these days? Like I said, senior management is important, but because, you know, we just talked about operations and finance, you need to have them involved because if you're going to streamline a business process, that has impacts on your resources, it could have financial impacts. I mean, finance should be involved anyway, because almost every initiative we see, it isn't like someone's writing blank checks. They're all backed by a business case. So you might as well get finance in there because they'll be better at quantifying basically the opportunities and costs that will be associated with it. But where I really wanted to move into is, you know, getting more people involved, like strategy and marketing, and then product teams. And we just don't do that as much yet. And probably the biggest scary figure we have is we're not engaging the end users right now. And when we looked across it, only 12% of IoT initiatives involve end users as stakeholders. And that is a scary statistic because this is the build it and they will come mentality. We're building something because we can, making it work because we can. We're not even paying attention to whether it's going to be adopted. And if you remember back about six or eight months ago, Cisco released that stat that three quarters of IoT initiatives fail. Well, this is probably a good reason why that's actually happening. So does that mean companies should have something like a special projects team to actually coordinate across these functions because there are so many functions being involved in the process itself? Yeah, I think it's almost like creating a virtual team would be the ideal. And then you should go out there and identify stakeholders in each of these groups. And to be honest with you, depending on the types of initiatives, they may not need to be involved as much at earlier stages and they might want to get involved later, but at least have them identified up front and engaged up front so they can at least track it going forward. The problem we face now is when we go out there and do these things and they fail, people come back in and throw stones at the end saying, what are we supposed to do about this? You know, I, I wasn't really that involved. Well, if you had the chance to be involved, then the ownership is on them where they should have done more to try and influence the direction of these initiatives. Since people are involved, so what are the common points of failure for IoT initiatives? This is where it gets fun. So what I started doing was taking a look at these different initiatives 
and why they're failing. So like they want to drive an advantage. So remember I talked about some of the things that they wanted to accomplish. Um, so one of them was about driving product and service innovation, which was 66% of companies think they can drive that. In reality, only 8% are involving the product team. So that's a massive gap. So that's going to lead to failure right there. 59% think they can drive competitive advantage, yet only 17% involve strategy. So it's another massive gap. And I think the one that probably scared me the most when I saw it was that 54% believe that they can enhance the customer experience with IoT, yet only 13% are engaging marketing. Now, what I think is going to happen then is you are going to impact the customer experience, but you have a good chance of impacting it negatively. So these are the gaps that I really see that are going to be causing points of failure going forward. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'd be surprised if that number from Cisco changes too much next year, because the way we're doing this is setting it up to fail. And probably the biggest one on this, like I said, I mentioned the thing about end users. The fact that we don't involve the people who are going to be using it, we don't understand the user experience or the user process. That's a very big risk to be taking. And I think that companies need to address that because if not, they might build a technically sound, secure solution, but no one's going to be using it. Given how you have actually looked at these common points of failures in the IoT initiatives, how does companies actually avert these common points of failure for them then? Well, I think about it as understanding how IoT actually evolves. And this is where I think the industry as a whole has failed. Everybody sees the huge numbers that come out of the analyst firms, you know, whether it's going, to be, it's going to be a $7 trillion opportunity in 2020, or that's now dropped down to a $1 trillion in 2020, or whether it's 20, 30, or 50 billion connections by 2020. Everyone gets excited and everyone thinks it's really easy to go out there and grab their share of that market. And in fact, it isn't. And I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I was talking to somebody who works for a large systems integrator, and they were looking at pulling an IoT offering this year. And he said, I want to drive about $20 million, so I need about four or five deals. And what I was explaining is, you probably need 40 or 50 deals. IoT isn't, they don't start with big initiatives most of the time. They start with proof of concepts, and then they grow slowly. So it's kind of like that old model when we were buying you know, CPE, customer premises equipment, and you pay for it all up front, and you move to cloud. It involves a big transition because you're not doing that big upfront spend. It starts small, and then it grows and grows and grows. And the ecosystem as a whole needs to understand that, which means the vendors should be helping the customers understand that, you know, look, even though this is going to be a small proof of concept, you need to get these people engaged now. And, you know, they should be planning for a longer process, you know, long tail on these types of initiatives versus just a one-off selling point. And I think until the technology vendors and the tech buyers understand that, we'll also run into a lot of challenges because we're not setting this up right now to be successful. You know, we don't, for the vendors, they don't have the right compensation plans for their teams. They all think they can go out there and sell, you know, these big whack deals that'll be five or $10 million each. A lot of times they're going to start at 50 or 100K, but they might reach that five or $10 million in a few years but it's a slow process. It grows over time. How about the security aspect as a common point of failure then? The security is also a big challenge because, you know, going back to that same thing about that proof of concept model, when you do something small initially, most companies and vendors don't try and do a detailed risk analysis, you know, or identifying the potential risk, whether that's going to be on the endpoint, data in transit, data at rest, the application security. They tend to sort of start with a proof of concept that is not totally secure. And then as that grows over time, they realize, wait a minute, we haven't actually mitigated the potential risks. So what I always like to say is, I mean, I'm actually not concerned about security risks as much because I think we can secure any solution end to end if we would actually plan for it. The problem we have is that operationally, we don't build in that structure to the process. So we don't actually help customers 
identify that up front. If we did, we'd actually be able to actually stop a lot of these problems we have or security risks. And it's one of those things in the industry. I mean, we've known about security risks since technology has been evolving, but we always sort of, so I guess, don't invest as much up front as we should in that area of the business. And unfortunately, what we'll see is there will be a lot of IoT security breaches in the future. That doesn't mean that the technology isn't sound and that they couldn't have been secured. It just means that the companies and the vendors aren't actually doing the upfront analysis and making sure they're secured. And part of that has to do with cost as well. Um, if you're doing a proof of concept, if you really want to invest in all the security components on it, that blows the cost on it way up. And so it becomes a challenge of how do I justify those costs when we might be just doing this thing and throwing it away in three months. It sounds like for every technology, security is always an afterthought and never a forethought, I guess. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. And uh, you would think that we would learn from our previous mistakes, but unfortunately, we haven't as of yet. So you have a recent interesting example on Taipei creating a citizen-centric smart city. Can you share the backstory to how they managed to do it and what they got right in the process? Yeah, this was one of those meetings that I had where I just I kept smiling because I was so happy with what they were actually doing. And I was actually laughing with somebody about it afterwards is, what they're doing just makes sense. It's common sense, but no one's really doing it. And the way I looked at it was, you know, we look at something like smart cities, we haven't come close to reaching the potential of them. We're still really stuck in deploying infrastructure-centric solutions versus going into citizen-centric solutions. Taipei has figured a way around that. And what they've done is they've addressed those three key issues that I see in smart cities. And that's about the funding, because no cities that I find are writing blank checks for this. So they have to understand how are we going to pay for it, resourcing-wise. So what resources do you have internally or you can you leverage in the ecosystem to identify, design, deliver, and support the solutions. And the third one is use cases. You know, what solutions actually will deliver value to the city and citizens? And you got to remember, for a smart city, it's actually a lot of different businesses, dozens of them across a city, if not more. And then, you know, so you're going to have thousands, tens of thousands of solutions out there. So who's actually going to come up with those lists? So what Taipei did is they created a new strategy and they created their, the PMO that they use. And most cities are going to have a PMO, but they have a different model for it. So the Taipei City PMO actually sits in the middle of the ecosystem. So its job isn't to just become the gatekeeper when you try to interact with the government. Its job is to help tech vendors and citizens work with that government. So what I mean by that is they had a three-part strategy on it. Number one, they wanted to capture the citizen needs. So the Taipei City PMO went out there and they ran a bunch of different initiatives and they captured the needs and wishes of 30,000 citizens. And then what they did is they went out there and said, okay, well, we're working with the government now at the top down. So they engaged 20 different government agencies to start helping them drive their initiatives. And that could be things around smart transport. They've always had a bike sharing scheme. They're going to have an electric scooter scheme this year, an electric car scheme this year. They got autonomous vehicles, which have been already tested over on Gini in front of Taipei 101. So they're really starting to help that government navigate the way down. But what's really unique is the way that they've engaged the tech vendors. So the purpose of that PMO is to actually engage tech vendors and help them navigate the government. Now, this is important because, like I said, a lot of times PMOs act as blockers. They've actively gone out and engaged over one or 400 vendors already. And that could be large MNCs because Cisco's involved in there and IBM, but also a lot of startups. And they create these teams. And what they've done is deliver already over 120 proof of concepts around the city on what they call their IoT experimental platform. And what I like about this is Taipei really figured the way to sort of handle this and make it more interesting because they know we don't have cash. So when they go out and talk to that tech community and engage those vendors, 
they say, listen, we can't give you the money for all of this. But what we do have is infrastructure and assets, and we'll let you leverage those. So we can allow you to do your solutions and launch a proof of concept at one of our sites where we have infrastructure already. And it gives those vendors a chance to showcase their solutions in a real smart city environment. Now, on the use case side as well, this platform is opened up to citizens as well, where they can go out there and develop on it. For instance, there's, they have a LoRa platform out there. They have a Sigfox platform that you can use. And Sigfox, for instance, is the Univis, the local Sigfox operator, is donating 10,000 licenses or connections for people to go and test and trial solutions for the smart city there. And what I like about this is that this also helps them address the resourcing issue because If Taipei City had to come up with tens of thousands or even thousands of solutions on their own, they couldn't. If they went to one vendor or 10 vendors, they couldn't. What this is doing is they're sitting in the middle of citizens, governments, and tech vendors trying to get everyone to work together to actually identify these use cases. And it's one of the few I've seen that's really helped them go beyond infrastructure-centric to citizen-centric because a lot of these proof of concepts they're delivering right now are getting to that next area. And to be perfectly honest with you, let's just say 90% of them or 75% of them fail. That's fine. At least what we're going to be getting then is a smaller percentage of solutions and use cases for that are citizen-centric that we can start deploying not only in Taipei, but into the hundreds of other smart city initiatives across the region and across the globe. So does that mean that after if the solution is successful for these citizens, they can actually do a scaling across the other parts of Taiwan with this kind of initiative they have implemented so far? Well, this is the challenge you face, I think, in any country. It's unlikely that you're going to have many cities that are actually sharing it across a whole entire country. They're all going to have their own initiatives, their own leaders, their own vendors. So it's still going to be like selling into a new city. But I think what would be very good for the rest of the cities in Taiwan to do is track this closely because they're going to be identifying these types of use cases that they could potentially deploy. So they're doing a lot of the legwork and that upfront work to help you test the market and see what works. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them going out and partnering with a lot of other cities. And Taipei does that already. They're one of the leaders when it comes to having global arrangements with cities around the world where they do knowledge sharing. And that's great because, number one, it's going to help with uh, foreign direct investment. A lot of those companies and countries will want to come into Taiwan. But it also allows them to take some of these solutions, which could be from Taiwanese vendors, out to the wider market as well. So it's actually a public-private partnership that allows for external to enter into Taipei and also for internal to expand out of Taipei. Is that how I understand it correctly? That's the way I would look at it. And what I, I think is interesting is we always hear about these PPPs. This is one that really seems to be working and driving value initially up front right now. And I'm happy to see it because it's just a pragmatic approach. We need to do something different. I mean, I, I get to talk to quite a few of the governments around the region, and I definitely think Taipei's government is the most open to trying to engage that wider ecosystem and saying, listen, we need your help. Let's do this together. So I've been very impressed with like tracking this one, and I'm curious to see how it's going to evolve over the next year. So it should be interesting. I would say definitely keep on tracking this one to see what happens next. So before we take the break, so who's winning in the IoT race then? Uh, this is the fun thing. So when we did this research recently, the, uh, the global survey, we were trying to find out who are your preferred vendors. So who are you hiring in to actually manage your deals? And what we found was that it changes quite a bit. So year on year, we looked at initially 375 projects from the past 12 months, and then 843 projects for the next 12 months. And you can start breaking it down by vendor type. In the end, there's really no truly dominant player. I mean, IBM comes across the top with just under 11% of initiatives that are going to be led by them. And this is important. It doesn't mean that they're doing the whole thing. This means that they are leading the IoT initiatives. So the top one was IBM, followed by Cisco at just under 9%. And this is good news for Cisco because... 
let's face it, after the Jasper acquisition, they didn't have great messaging for probably a year, year and a half around IoT. Now with Kinetic, they finally have that back and they're still maintaining a really strong market share there. Huawei follows that up and Microsoft and Schneider making it in the top five. And then going down to the next ones, you got SAP, Amazon, Bosch, Rockwell, and Dell. Now, what I find really interesting here is you get some of the leaders in ICT, but those OT vendors, your Schneiders, stuff that Bosch, or Bosch does and Rockwell and even SAP, they're starting to become the lead vendor on the deals. And this is how I think it's going to advance over time. You'll see a lot more of these deals led not only by the OTs, but you'll also start seeing the systems integrators come in. And most of the systems integrators now are getting a lot more active because they realize the market's actually there to go after, whereas before it would have been too small to make it worthwhile. We'll take a break and we'll come back to discuss the state of the low power white area networks, which is LP WANs in Asia in 2018. Okay, sounds great. Thanks a lot. 